Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. I want to thank you for your patience, and my April was a good one, but I'm back, and I'm better than ever for the podcast. So, let's get started, and as a reminder, since it's been a month, last time we talked about the Swedish landings in northern Germany and how they didn't go as smoothly as expected. This week, we continue on with that path. And Gustavus, like I said last time, found it difficult to break out of the cordon that the Imperials had created around the territory he had conquered, mainly being held back to the east by the Oder, and Mecklenburg to the west. This meant, in order to help break out, he had to get local princes to support him. But he was still a relative unknown to politics, and the reputation of the Swedes, even what I talked about last week, was still kind of semi-barbaric. They weren't necessarily as civilized as the Germans. Regional bias can be fun that way. Gustavus wanted either the princess to choose to be his enemies or his allies. He didn't want neutrality, as exemplified by this quote. I don't want to hear about neutrality. His grace must be my friend or foe. This is a fight between the god and the devil. If his grace is with God, then he must join me. If he is with the devil, he must fight me. There is no third way. So, yeah, he wasn't exactly a fan of the princes wanting to say neutral. But many of the Protestant princes and other lords did want to say neutral, because they hope to solve the issue of the edict through legal manners, such as focusing on the rights of Protestants and the rights of German princes. And they also hope the emperor would be willing to negotiate peacefully to help deal with this edict that had caused a lot of issues. Many lords sent their own requests to the emperor individually, but Gustavus didn't actually allow Pomerania to do this because he knew diplomacy wouldn't really help and it wouldn't help his cause if they declared a more neutral and less aggressive stance. That did get some blowback from some of the other lords, with the Chancellor Brandenburg, Sigismund von Gotz, saying Gustavus was a foreign king who had no business with the empire, or in the empire. So, it is to say the Swedes weren't the most popular group at the moment. A neutral power block was actually forming, which was created by Johann George, based around the idea of legal rights of the Protestant princes, as I mentioned a minute ago. The princes of the new block became less critical of Calvinists and even supported some level of resistance against the empire, at least to keep their rights and make sure they aren't persecuted the same way that the Catholics wanted to. The funny thing is that the neutral block was actually supported by Maximilian, who gave it more weight, and used it to try to get a more moderate version of the edict implemented to try to salvage what the edict did. And remember that Maximilian was not a supporter of the edict, and he wanted to keep the peace in the empire. Especially because he was in a whole political pickle with his new status and he wanted stability. However, this neutral party did not leave Johann unharmed, politically at least. Those who billeted League and Imperial troops were hurt because the reduction of troops that had been ongoing since Wallenstein had been taken out of office had been cancelled due to the Swedes invading and the Empire needing as many troops as possible. Billeting, as a reminder, is soldiers staying in civilians' homes to make sure they're fed, housed, etc. They had to feed them and everything. So the army was still expensive to maintain, even if the level of troops was still less than what was under Wallenstein. So it was still a big burden on the empire as well. And Ferdinand didn't really jump in to help anyone, so there was no relief coming for anyone. The Imperials also had a sense of false confidence due to the fact the Swedes hadn't been as successful as Gustavus had wanted, that was all being bolstered by troops that were slowly trickling in from Italy to reinforce the cordon. And not helping was the fact that 
the emperor refused to acknowledge a peaceful solution and refused to buckle to the neutral party's demands, which gave little option for the princes, meaning they had to choose either support Ferdinand or support the Swedes, who, as a reminder, the Imperials were the ones that were trying to take away the rights of the Protestants. Many Protestants, especially those who were children or relatives of those who had lost property and, and had been forced to pay money due to the other rebellions and wars, saw Gustavus as their only option in the future, many of them gathering thousands of men, in particular Landgrave Wilhelm V with 7,000 men. And said Landgrave also refused to pay his dues along with blocking supplies to the Imperials. It should be said that this wasn't open support yet. They were waiting for Gustavus to prove himself, wanting to avoid imperial retribution if Gustavus failed. They also, hopefully, thought that Johann George would be more forceful and convince the emperor to back down on the edict, which would mean that joining with a foreign invader wouldn't be the thing they had to do. The situation was tense all around, and neither side could really make a move at this point, which was inevitably leading to major conflict. The diplomatic option had been basically ignored, which made more and more Protestant leaders being forced to decide where they stood. And in the face of the edict, which we talked about a couple episodes ago, was not something that made the Catholics look good. This pattern would continue as the war went on, but I'll cover that as we get to it. Next, I have to cover the Siege of Magdeburg, which is one of the more famous events of the Thirty Years' War. Magdeburg was technically an imperial city at this time, in terms of allegiance, but one of its supposed administrators declared for Sweden, sneaking past the centuries into the city and taking control of town hall on July 27, 1630, with a handful of men. More of his men arrived quickly, which forced the city to agree to form an alliance with the Swedish. Gustavus quickly sent troops to try to support the city, not wanting them to betray him or secure the city by October. However, troops under Pappenheim managed to drive the local troops back into the city walls, but they only had around 3,000 men, so they did not have the troops to really start a siege, which would require many more. Tilly wanted to lead a siege effort, but Maximilian refused, not wanting to potentially bring France into the war due to the Treaty of Borwald, aka the one where France agreed to financially support Sweden. We talked about that a couple episodes ago. The lack of league troops hurt the initial effort into the Imperials besieging the city, but Pappenheim, with his own troops, sent around 7,000 more to keep the local and Swedish troops contained. Gustavus, at this point, could not afford to let the city fall, as that would lose him a foothold as well as make him look weak and lose support from the German Protestants. At this time, he was slowly gathering troops, which his aim was for 100,000, but at the moment, he only had 20,000 available, and a third of those were sick, and around 18,000 were assigned for garrison duty on top of that. He desperately needed German troops, but they wouldn't join him until he proved himself, at least in large numbers. One of his offenses that he had planned managed to push back the Imperials from Gartz and Greffenhagen all the way to the Lower Oder, securing it for the Swedes, but he was blocked by Brandenburg's garrison at, at Kustrin until he, hearing about this, forced to march his troops from Halderstadt to rally the defeated troops. This was around 320 kilometers, and he did this in about 10 days, which is impressive speed for an army, especially an army of around seven and a half thousand troops. 
Gustavus, knowing that he couldn't push any further east, had to rethink his strategy and avoided Brandenburg to head west through Pomerania into Mecklenburg. Tilly chased after him and attacked Nuremberg and killed around a third of the 750 defenders the Swedes left behind. This was a bad move as the Protestants claimed this was done during prayers, which was used to sway more people to Johann's group, which which I should have mentioned earlier was based on the Leipzig Convention is where they were organizing all this. Tilly, knowing he was in... Enemy territory at this point, and Gustavus could march back on him, retreated to Magdeburg, which increased the number of besiegers to 25,000 as Maximilian had come around to being able to allow support from the League troops. Reinforcements for Tilly had also begun to trickle in larger numbers, with the largest being around 24,000 coming from Italy. They weren't necessarily available at the moment, but this bolstered the Imperial and Catholic will. The large amount of troops that was coming and were there, effectively Magdeburg was unable to be relieved due to the sheer number of the Imperials. Gustavus had to draw out Tilly by helping conquer the last of the holdouts in the Duchy of Mecklenburg, and then going east, taking France, taking Frankfurt and killing 1,700 defenders of there as retribution for the massacre of the Swedish troops, before finally securing Landsberg, which gave him control over the lower Oder, expanding his reach. Tilly, however, was not drawn away, his focus was on Magdeburg. He arrived and created Adelworks by May 1st, 1631, and two weeks later, the suburbs of the city fell to Imperial troops. The defenders possessed only around 2,500 regular troops and 5,000 local troops, and only about 2,000 of those local troops were actually adults. So, the city was being defended by old men and teenagers, which in a siege wasn't uncommon, but it showed kind of the desperation of how badly they are numbered. The population of the city was around 25,000, having been hit hard by plague and economic downturn, so the city was not as full as it could be. But they were still not in a good condition, even at the current moment. The local Swedish commander was pressured to accept the surrender, but he held hope that Gustavus would arrive, which he wouldn't as Gustavus was at Potsdam at, at the time, which was around 90 kilometers away. On May 20th, 18,000 troops began a final assault, the morale raised by a wine ration given before the assault. The events of the siege are famous, and the accounts that I have in my books are vivid, but some of it might be kind of hyperbolic or exaggerated to the nature of the event, so I would say take some of it with a grain of salt. That being said, they are still relatively reliable, it's just some of the details might not be exactly 100% true. The main account we know, or the main most reliable account we know, comes from Guerrique, uh, Guer who was a local counselor who shifted all the blame to the Swedish commander, who went by the name of Falkenberg. The story goes that the Swedish commander was taken by surprise by the assault, expecting negotiations to continue, and was in the town hall of the city at the time of the assault, which was 8 a.m. The defensive walls held out stubbornly, but the troops had a shortage of ammo and supplies, which meant they had a hard time holding. Two companies of Croat troops snuck into the poorly guarded gate on the Elbe, and maybe set a fire that became infamous even into the 20th century. Some Protestants claimed they made an emulate herself rather than surrender, while others said the Catholics were to blame for the fire. A Catholic commander claimed he was given orders from Pappenheim to set a house on fire to drive out some defenders, which is similar to other claims, and others claimed it was an accident and no one really caused this. I am on the side of it was an accident, as Chile would want to capture the city intact, in a conflagration would not help anyone, especially him. But unfortunately for everyone, the fire began to spread, and it reached the gunpowder storage in the city, and by 10 a.m., the city was fully on fire, a conflagration sweeping over it. On the war front, the resistance in the north of the city collapsed, 
letting Pappenheim enter with two columns. The Swedish commander was probably dead by this point, and people began to barricade themselves in their home, fearful of the troops. The Catholic troops, caught up in fervor, began to pillage, but Pappenheim had enough control to save around a thousand people who had taken shelter in a local cathedral. 600 women were saved by monks at a pre-monstratenian monastery, but the fire claimed the rest of the city, the wind spreading it far and wide. And on top of the raging fire, there was also violence and pillaging happening to the citizens that continued for several days, which was reported by Catholic sources, so it wasn't just Protestant propaganda. Just as a warning for this one particular story that I read, but it's brutal, but I think it needs to be said at least how it's described. One report said that six soldiers raped a 12-year-old girl in their courtyard, and they were too afraid to report it initially, and by the time they did, it was too late to identify anyone who did it, which would probably have been happening across the city and stuff like that, which soldiers and teachers were like that, but not everything was awful like that. Some soldiers just stopped at taking things like shoes and practical things, while others would get violent if they could not find what they wanted. So it was a spectrum of soldiers' behavior. One of the local counselors, not wanting to get robbed, dressed like he looked poor, but his house was still ransacked. He hid there with his family, but when a maid went to hide with them, a party of plunderers soon arrived. His son actually went to appease them and offered them his pocket money, and surprisingly they responded well, bringing the family to the safety of the Imperial camp, with the added condition of selling stuff to them for that. This was not an isolated incident, as... Soldiers would regularly bring people back who would reward them for bringing them to safety, whether they be commoners, nobility, clergy. So there was some humanity going on, even if it was a bit selfish. Many of those were able to leave the camp with an extra payment, unmolested by the troops, although they were probably a lot poorer coming out of it than they were in the city. The final casting numbers were 20,000 defenders and civilians, with 100 besiegers dying. It is reported that there were so many bodies that couldn't bury them, so they just threw them in the river. Most probably died during the conflagration, although a decent amount would still probably have died from troops being overzealous. According to census data, a year later, only around 449 people lived in the city, and the city would remain largely ruined until 1720. The siege, for good or for ill, became a major symbol of the sheer brutality of massacres of this war. Whether or not most people died of the fire, it became a staple of pamphlets of the era talking about the brutality of Catholics, and would even shape the image of the war in the future, as it became a comparison point of other massacres even decades later. For my opinion, as I will state, I think most people died in the fire, which was either choking from heat, burning to death, all the other things you associate with major fires. Although, I couldn't say who did it necessarily. I believe it was an accident, but it could have been intentional. It's one of those things that's been lost to time and we'll never know due to the chaos. What's important is that it happened. I will say, I think many of the troops' issues in the city was less about protestantism and more about money and greed wanting to either get stuff they wanted or make more money especially because some of them probably would have been mercenaries so brutal but maybe not necessarily due to religion it's still a horrifying event and it would haunt catholics into the future even if people like maximilian complimented tilly on the victory i guess if i had to do a comparison stake for population density reduction imagine if New York City got depopulated by 6.5 million people of the 8 million currently living there over a week. So it was definitely a major, oh god, this is real bad sort of event. 
But for now, I will leave you all here with the ruins of a burnt city as we move on to Bretonfeld next week, which will be fun as it is one of the famous battles of Gustavus. I want to thank you all for listening in and hope you're enjoying it. It's great to be back. Schedule will be proceeding as normal. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. Reminder of a Patreon if you wish to support me and to review and spread the word. And I'll see you guys next time. <laughs> <laughs>